Psalm chapter 5, verse 7. David wrote, As for me, by your abundant loving kindness, I will enter your house. At your holy temple, I will bow in reverence for you. Sunday we opened up and began talking about the temple. And especially the fact that the temple has an incarnational uniqueness to it. That it reminds us of, it points us to Jesus. Who is the temple. In fact, ultimately in New Jerusalem, Revelation 22 tells us that there is no temple for the Lord and the Lamb are the temple. So we are looking to Jesus here, even as we consider over the next five to seven chapters, even as we consider the construction of the temple and all of Solomon's work to put this magnificent building together, don't forget who we're looking at. Don't forget who this is a model of. This is to point us to Jesus. And even as David says, As for me, by your abundant loving kindness, I will enter your house. At your holy temple, I will bow in reverence for you. In fact, at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow. Of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue will confess Jesus Christ as Lord, to the glory of God the Father. All of what the chronicler is doing points us in the messianic direction. The direction of Messiah looking to Jesus. We've seen this throughout 1 Chronicles. As now we roll on into 2 Chronicles, this doesn't change. And so the primary focus of the first seven chapters here is going to be the temple. It's messianic because the temple remains right here at the centerpiece of the kingdom. It was the centerpiece of Jerusalem, which was the centerpiece of Israel. And so the heart of Jewish worship was there. Now something to recognize, well I mentioned this when we were studying 1 Chronicles, but the, the writer of 1 Chronicles wrote probably sometime between about 420 and 400 B.C. So this is after the exiles have returned from captivity, after the original temple, Solomon's temple, was destroyed and laid waste. After Israel and Judah had split and both kingdoms were wiped out. And now the Jews have returned to Jerusalem. And so to refer to these things and think about these things, to look back at the glory days of David, Solomon, and the temple would have been very encouraging for this people during some discouraging times. When the glory seemed to have left and departed. And they weren't sure if it would ever be back. But it also serves another purpose. First and Second Chronicles serves to help us look ahead, to help the Jewish people look ahead, to when those days would be surpassed, those great days of Solomon would be surpassed by even greater days, by the eternal kingdom that God had promised would come, by a new and greater temple that would be built. Messiah was coming. And at this point in Jewish history, as this was being written, the Jewish people were looking forward expectantly for Messiah, son of David, to come and to right all wrongs and to restore that great and eternal kingdom. Now, as 2 Chronicles begins, Solomon has been charged by his father David to build this temple on Mount Moriah. But before things get underway, it's interesting, Solomon takes a little side trip. He leaves Jerusalem. Mount Moriah there, as you know, is in Jerusalem. It's that ridge that cuts right up the middle of Jerusalem. But he leaves there and he travels about five miles northwest of Jerusalem to a town called Gabeon. The Ark of the Covenant was in Jerusalem, but the tabernacle, the original tabernacle of Moses, was still there housed in Gabeon. The altar of sacrifice and the bronze labor and the altar of incense, the lampstand, the table, the table of showbread, that was all there in Gabeon. Only the Ark was in Jerusalem Watch what happens here. Verse 1. Now Solomon the son of David established himself securely over his kingdom. And the Lord his God was with him and exalted him greatly. And that's an overview of the next several chapters. 
that opening verse. Here's the deal. This is what's going on. So Solomon, verse 2, spoke to all Israel, to the commanders of thousands and of hundreds, and to the judges and to every leader in all Israel, the heads of the fathers' households. And then Solomon and all the assembly with him went to the high place, which was at Gibeon. For God's tent of meeting was there, which Moses, the servant of the Lord, had made in the wilderness. However, David had brought up the ark of, of God from kiriath Jerim to the place he had prepared for it, for he had pitched a tent for it in Jerusalem. Now the bronze altar, which Bezalel, the son of Uri, the son of Hur, had made back in Moses' day, that bronze altar was there before the tabernacle of the Lord, and Solomon and the assembly sought it out. Solomon went up there before the Lord to, Lord to the bronze altar, which was at the tent of meeting, and offered a thousand burnt offerings on it. And this sets up for us an interesting situation. You might ask the question, why not just save the gas and stay in Jerusalem? You know, why travel over there to Gibeon? The ark is in Jerusalem after all. And wasn't that the place that the Lord said He would meet with the people? He said, I'll meet with you above the mercy seat, above the ark of the covenant. Well, that's Jerusalem. So why waste the time and travel with all these people all the way over to Gibeon? And the reason is clear, gang. To go to God, you first need a sacrifice. And the bronze altar was in Gibeon. Solomon recognized, knew, even at this point was wise enough to know he needed to offer sacrifice before he could just start approaching the Lord, even at the Ark of the Covenant. Sacrifice comes first. And nothing's changed with that truth. We still need a sacrifice. You still cannot go to the Lord unless you have a sacrifice. Don't forget, if you are in Christ, you have a sacrifice. Which is why you can approach the Lord in the first place. The fact that we can bow and pray and come before the Father in worship is because we have a sacrifice. Let me write something that may be confusing. No man can approach God without the sacrifice. Now there are plenty of people in our world today who think they do. But if God is true to His Word, the sacrifice has to precede the meeting. Hebrews chapter 9, verse 12 tells us, Not through the blood of goats and calves, but through His own blood, Jesus entered the holy place once for all, having obtained eternal redemption. But tragically, there are many people today who think, in a time of need or struggle or, or despair, they can just call out to God. The sacrifice is unnecessary. But my friends, you have to have a sacrifice to approach the Father. You have to have the cleansing that comes with it. You don't get to the Father unless you go through the Son. Now I have a good friend who has stated that he has had ecstatic experiences. That he has experienced and felt the divine. Oh, not the God of Christianity or, or of Islam or of Judaism or of any or Hinduism. But he's experienced the divine. Not really sure what that is, but he knows he's experienced that. You don't go to the Father except through the Son. 1 John 2.23 says, Whoever denies the Son does not have the Father. The one who confesses the Son has the Father also. If you want God, you go through the Son. 2 John 1.9 Anyone who goes too far and does not abide in the teaching of Christ does not have God. I mean, it doesn't get any more plain and simple than that. Now, it's not that I don't think any of you here realize that or recognize that. It's not that I don't believe at least the vast majority of everyone here tonight, I assume, have a relationship with Jesus at some level. You've gone to the Son to go to the Father. But we need to realize, and part of the reason some of these verses are here, is to recognize this theology. Because I know people 
who have gone to the Father through the Son, but don't think it's necessary for others to do the same. It's called tolerance. Let's just be tolerant of everybody. And what anyone wants to believe is great and fine with them, and why would I want to mess with that? Because if you don't, and they're trying to go to God any other way, they will not get there. And I'm not just speaking Rick's opinion, I'm speaking biblical truth. Jesus said, no one comes to the Father except through me. So there's three verses in a row that make it absolutely clear the path to the Father is through the Son. Why is that? Because the Son was the sacrifice. And you cannot approach God without the sacrifice. Jesus was the perfect sacrifice once and for all. Well, Solomon recognizes this. He goes to God at Gibeon first to sacrifice. But here's where it gets interesting, at least for me. God doesn't wait for Solomon to return back to Jerusalem to meet him above the ark. Now, that's where he said he would. But verse 7 says, In that night God appeared to Solomon and said to him, Ask what I shall give to you. All right, Lord, i got a theological problem with this because you're not sticking to what I perceive as the way things are supposed to be. You told Moses, in the tent of meeting, above the Ark of the Covenant, above the mercy seat, I will meet with you there. God was absolutely specific about that. And my safe, fenced-in, legally binding theology likes to know that. But Israel's already messed it up. The Ark is in Jerusalem, and the tent of meeting is in Gabeon. Five miles of rugged territory separate the two. How in the world am I supposed to meet God at the Tent of Meeting and at the Ark of the Covenant when they're not even in the same place? And what's wonderful here is the Lord shows us something about Himself. You know what this tells us about God? He's not bound by religion. He is not bound by the circumstance of man. We may be. I said on Sunday, and you may recall this, I said that there's a divine design that if we will follow God's pattern, the pattern laid out in Scripture, we will be the better for it. We will be more sanctified. We can draw closer to God because of it. But please understand this. Though there is a divine design for you and for me, God is not bound by that design. This is for us. The design is for you. The design is for me to draw closer to Him. But God's not bound by these things. He can do whatever He wants. Now, don't get me wrong, I'm not saying he goes outside of his word, because his word always is in concert with what he's doing. But what I am saying is, he will do the unexpected. He will function in a way maybe we don't, maybe we're not ready for. Because God is not concerned with lawful ceremony, the implements of sacrifice. Well, Rick, you just said you have to have sacrifice. Yes, and we do through the Son. But what God is concerned with, gang, is the heart. The ark and the tent were not in the right place, but Solomon's heart was. Remember back in 1 Chronicles chapter 28, verse 9, David said this to Solomon. He said, As for you, my son Solomon, know the God of your father and serve him with a whole heart and a willing mind. For the Lord searches all hearts and understands every intent of the thoughts. That's where God's concerned. What is your heart? What's your intent? What's the motivation behind what you're doing? Even tonight, you could show up here with a completely wrong motive and miss God. It's not being in this place that draws you closer to the Father. It's a heart open to receive Him. Solomon's heart was in the right place, though the ark and the tent were in two different places. For God, He weighs the motives, and for Him, the heart is always more important 
than the ritual. Isaiah chapter 66, verse 1. Thus says the Lord, Heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. Where then is a house you could build for me? And where is a place that I may rest? And we read that verse last week, referring to the temple and the building of the temple. And he doesn't need a house made by human hands. But listen to the next verse. For my hand made all these things, thus all these things come into being, declares the Lord. But to this one I will look, to him who is humble and contrite of spirit and trembles at my word. God's not looking to the temple to see who's worshiping. He's looking to the heart of the worshiper. He's looking to the heart of the person who comes before him. And that's where Solomon is. His heart is in the right place. He's come before the Lord. He's offering sacrifices first. He wants to please God. It is a great beginning for this first son of David or one of the, the sons of David in the, in the early stages of his reign. Now, now watch this because Solomon is about to pray a prayer. God starts the prayer. What do you want, Solomon? What would you like to have? I want you to notice the what, where, why, and how of this prayer. First off, what? What does Solomon ask for? Verse 8. Solomon said to God, You have dealt with my father, David with great loving kindness and have made me king in his place. Now, O Lord God, your promise to my father David is fulfilled and you have made me king over a people as numerous as the dust of the earth. Give me now wisdom and knowledge that I may go out and come in before this people for who can rule this great people of yours? God said to Solomon, because you had this in mind and did not ask for riches, wealth, or honor or the life of those who hate you, Nor have you even asked for a long life. But you've asked for yourself wisdom and knowledge that you may rule my people over whom I have made you king. Hmm. When wisdom and knowledge have been granted to you. And I will give you riches and wealth and honor such as none of the kings who were before you has possessed nor those who will come after you. So Solomon went from the high place of Gibeon to the tent of meeting from the tent of meeting to Jerusalem And he reigned over Israel. What does Solomon ask for? Two things. He asked for wisdom and he asked for knowledge. Now we get a different perspective from the writer of Chronicles. Because back in Kings, when this same question is asked and Solomon answers, he asks for understanding of the heart. It's a more intuitive and emotional request from that perspective. This is the other perspective. Same prayer, same request. But we see more of what's in the heart of Solomon. He asked for wisdom and knowledge. Wisdom is chokmah. Chokmah in the Hebrew, and it means discernment, judgment. And we won't see this in the, in the writing of Second Chronicles, but back in Kings, it was that kind of judgment that Solomon used with the two women who came before him who were arguing over who, whose baby this was. You may recall that great story. Discernment. He was wise in his dealings with the people. He showed great judgment as a king. He was given that chokmah, by the Lord, but also knowledge. Now, Christians, hear this. This is so important. Knowledge is the word made or mada in the Hebrew, and it literally means practical know-how for the day-to-day. Just practical street smarts. Thinking through how to go from one moment to the next. I like that. Because truly, walking with Jesus is practical to everyday life. It is not some esoteric spiritual thing now we can get that way we can in worship have you know great emotional experience and feel just closer to the Lord than ever before we can get that walking out on a hike in the woods or although when I do that I tend to get lost or you could on the beach at a beautiful sunset be in prayer to the Lord and really feel the emotion of all that that's not what we're talking about 
talking about just everyday life, practical living. Relevance to your life is, is in this book and by His Spirit. The wisdom of God for practical life. Whether you're a king seeking to rule a people or a parent seeking how to figure out your children or a store clerk seeking to be light at a local Walmart, it's practical wisdom for everyday life. And the Lord offers that to you and to me. Paul writes, we have the mind of Christ. And there is practicality there. Simple, intelligent thought. And we can look for things, and we can seek to understand things simply by the Spirit. Simple things, not even great spiritual truths, just, where did I leave my keys? Lord, where, where are my keys? And you might think, well, God's way too busy, you know, dealing with, with struggles across the globe to deal with your keys. I don't think so. I don't think so. I've lost things and prayed about it and instantly remembered where they were. Because I believe the Lord does want you just to have the practical the everyday. Proverbs 23, verse 15. Solomon would write later, My son, if your heart is wise, my own heart also will be glad. And my inmost being will rejoice when your lips speak what is right. Do not let your heart envy sinners, but live in the fear of the Lord always. Surely there is a future, and your hope will not be cut off. He says, Listen, my son, be wise and direct your heart in the way. Because our hearts desperately need direction. Truly they do. It's, not, it's no uh, coincidence that the Lord is most desirous of the human heart and the heart is the seat of our sin. But that's the most rebellious place in who we are and that's where the Lord wants to be. To save us completely. Deep calling to deep. Solomon was wise enough to know that he needed to seek God's wisdom to steer his heart, even in the practical everyday. The second thing, why does Solomon ask for wisdom and knowledge? Well, he's only 20 years old, roughly at this time. But even as a 20-year-old, no offense to those of you who are 20, but he's wise enough to realize he doesn't have all the answers. That's not always the case at that age. At least when I was 20, I knew I had a whole lot more answers than my dad did. It was amazing how intelligent he became in the next two or three years of my life. By the time I was 25, I could not believe how much my dad had learned in five years. It's incredible. Solomon's 20 years old and no doubt overwhelmed. He's just been handed the kingdom. Here you go, Solomon. 20 and he's in charge of all Israel. And he's been offered the role of building the temple of the Lord God. I mean, overwhelming, huge responsibility. And I think Solomon went to Gabeon because he didn't know where else to go. I think, frankly, he sat down and went, time to rule, what do we do? I don't know, where's the altar? (laughs) Let's go to God. Because I don't have a clue even where to start. I've shared with some of you before, it was like my first week of youth ministry. I had no clue. I was so excited that a church would even hire me. I think the Lord blinded them to wisdom for that brief you know, encounter. And they brought me up there. And I came into my office and I had a huge bookshelf with one book on it. And nothing to do. I didn't have a clue how to get started. And this is where I believe Solomon, in a far greater position, must have found himself. But sometimes it takes not knowing what to do to know where to turn. Sometimes I think the Lord allows us to walk into those situations where we don't have the answer for the next step because He knows we'll turn back and go, "Uh, Dad? Father? Lord? And then He's got something to work with. 
I quote this all the time. It's one of my favorite verses, John 6.68, where Peter says to Jesus, Lord, to whom shall we go? (laughs) Jesus says, you guys want to leave too? Well, we can leave, but we wouldn't have anywhere to go. You know, we're already connected to you. You're it. You alone have the words of life, Peter says. And so Solomon does that. He turns to the one who has the words of life, and the Lord says, okay, Solomon, what can I do for you? He could have asked for greatness, riches, wealth unparalleled, but he asks for wisdom and knowledge to guide and govern God's people. What would you have asked for? If you were there at Gabeon and the Lord appeared to you and said, what do you want? What can I do for you today? I'm curious. We could take a show of hands, but just think about it. What's the first thing that pops into your mind that you would have said, oh, what, did you pay off my house, God? That would be a great first start. And then we can... Solomon asked for the right thing. James writes this, James chapter 4, verse 3, You ask and do not receive, because you ask with wrong motives, so that you may spend it on your pleasures. Well, Solomon did not ask and not receive. He asked and received far more than he asked for or could even have imagined, because his concern was on the right thing. He wanted to guide and govern a people who belonged not to him, but to God. It was a completely unselfish prayer on Solomon's part. Where does Solomon get the idea to pray for wisdom in the first place? I mean, at the age of 20, how does he come up with this brilliant notion of saying, God, I need your wisdom, your will, your discernment. I need to know what you want. I'll tell you where he gets the idea. His dad. I think he got it directly from David. If you look back at 1 Chronicles chapter 22... Verse 11, David is talking to Solomon, and he says, Now, my son, the Lord be with you that you may be successful and build the house of the Lord your God just as he has spoken concerning you. Only the Lord give you discretion and understanding and give you charge over Israel so that you may keep the law of the Lord your God. David's prayer for Solomon became Solomon's prayer for himself. The Father's prayer for the Son is now being owned by the Son, and it's a prayer the Lord can answer and is pleased to do so. And fathers, I mention this just to say, do not underestimate the way in which your words shape your sons and your daughters. Don't underestimate what they're hearing come out of your mouths. Even what they're hearing you pray for them. What we hope and pray for our children is that they will begin to own what we have handed them in terms of faith. And that they will forget all the idiot things we did along the way. But also realize this, parents. For whatever you say to your children, they may or may not listen. Solomon said, listen, my son, and be wise and direct your heart in the way. Who was Solomon's firstborn son? You recall? Rehoboam. He was the second king, the king to follow, third king actually, who follows in the line of Judah, follows Solomon, and he completely, completely blows it. Completely messes it up. He does not listen to his father's words of wisdom and take it a step further. Solomon didn't ultimately listen to his father David's words of wisdom either. So, as a parent, you can speak all the wisdom of the Lord into your children, but you have to ultimately realize, and I believe we're called to do that, to speak truth into our kids' lives, but ultimately, they have to own it. And there comes a point when they will either own it, or they will reject it, just as Adam and Eve rejected the first father and child experience. 
They have to come to it themselves. So the idea to pray for wisdom, I believe it came directly from David. How does God respond? How does God respond? James chapter 1, verse 5 says, If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God, who gives to all generously and without reproach, and it will be given to him. And I can't even tell you how many times when our shepherds meet, or when Les and I meet, or when our staff meet, one of the first things that we pray for, and over and over pray for, is wisdom. Lord, give us wisdom. It's amazing how stupid I feel just after you know two or three days of getting away from praying that prayer. I come back to it time and time again. Lord, give us wisdom, because the Lord promises He will. All you got to do is ask. Unsure of how to deal with a certain situation? Ask. And the Lord will give. But know this, James 3.17 says, The wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, reasonable, full of mercy and good fruits, unwavering and without hypocrisy. It's a great list. It's similar to the list of the fruit of the Spirit. James 3.17. I mention that because we as followers of Jesus ought to memorize that one. Because when you pray to the Lord for wisdom and then you go to make a decision that requires wisdom, that decision, if it is wisdom from the Lord, will be peaceable, gentle, reasonable, full of mercy and good fruits, unwavering and without hypocrisy. If those things are lacking, then I put it to you this way, it's not the wisdom of the Lord, it's the wisdom of the world. And that's one way you can test whether the wisdom is from God or not. So the Lord grants Solomon wisdom, He grants him far more. He responds, you can almost hear excitement in the voice of the Lord as he says, boy, you you asked for this, I'm going to give you so much more than that. I'm going to give you riches and wealth and splendor beyond any king before you or any king after you, Solomon. You're going to be one of the great ones. But listen to how Jesus ties into God's generous blessing of Solomon. He says in Matthew 6.28, Observe how the lilies of the field grow. They don't toil, nor do they spin. Yet I say to you that not even Solomon in all his glory clothed himself like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which is alive today and tomorrow is thrown into the furnace, will he not much more clothe you, you of little faith? Do not worry then, saying, What will we eat? What will we drink? What will we wear for clothing? For the Gentiles eagerly seek after these things. You know what Jesus says next. Your heavenly Father knows you need all these things, but seek first His kingdom and His righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Solomon was blessed. Why? Because he sought first the kingdom. The prayer for wisdom and discernment was about the kingdom, first and foremost. Well, let's go on. Verse 14. Solomon now has returned to Jerusalem, and we're told, Solomon amassed chariots and horsemen. He had 1,400 chariots and 12,000 horsemen. And he stationed them in the chariot cities and with the king at Jerusalem. And the king made silver and gold as plentiful in Jerusalem as stones. And he made cedars as plentiful as sycamores in the lowland. Solomon's horses were imported from Egypt and from Kew. And the king's traders procured them from Kew for a price. They imported chariots from Egypt for 600 shekels of silver apiece and horses for 150 apiece, and by the same means they exported them to all the kings of the Hittites and the kings of Aram. I'll tell you what, Solomon got into the import-export business big time. Solomon was a horseman, unparalleled. And as I've mentioned recently, all across Israel, there there are horse cities. Megiddo is one of those. There was a horse city where chariots and horsemen and horses themselves were kept for Solomon. He had so many, such a, a great multiplication of horses. 
Now the chronicler writes this, these few verses, 14 through 17, just as a picture of the wealth and the blessing and the, and the generous life that, that Solomon had. But Bible students, do you recall what three things specifically the Lord said his kings were not to multiply for themselves? Back before the first king was introduced to Israel, before Saul became king, back at that time, Deuteronomy 17, 14 through 17, number one on the list, he shall not multiply for himself horses. First on the list. And Egypt, by the way, is specifically mentioned in Deuteronomy 17 as a place you should not go to get horses. So not only does Solomon multiply horses, but he goes to Egypt to get them. He completely violates the very first rule of thumb for the kings. Secondly, he shall not multiply silver and gold. And yet for Solomon, they became as as plentiful as rocks in Jerusalem. And he shall not, number three, multiply wives. 1 Kings 11.3 says Solomon had 700 wives, princesses, and 300 concubines. Which blows my mind. Absolutely blows my mind. I've shared before I have enough trouble understanding one wife. You know, much, much less a thousand. I'm not saying anything against Cheryl. This is, this is my problem. <laughs> I'm not going to mention who I was talking to this morning because I don't think Les would want me to. But <laughs> We just had the greatest conversation as two men about we just don't get it. We don't get it. We so often find ourselves, ladies, let me just tell you, because your husbands, we're, we're in this boat together. We look at our wives and we go, huh? It's not, I don't, okay, I'm sorry. <laughs> because we just don't think, you know, the way women think. And women do not think the way men think. It's not a right or wrong. It's just we're so uniquely different. Which is another beautiful design of the Lord that says for marriage to really work, you've got to have the Holy Spirit speaking to both of you so you can understand each other. You know, Jesus at the middle makes it work. But all that to say, here's the problem. And the writer of Kings states this very clearly. In fact, back in Deuteronomy 17, it says, He shall not multiply for himself wives, for they will turn his heart away from the Lord. Listen to verse four of, uh, verse 3 of 1 Kings 11. He had 700 wives, princesses, 300 concubines, and his wives turned his heart away. Exactly what God said. Don't do this. Don't multiply horses. Don't multiply money. Don't multiply wives because they will turn you away from the Lord. Horses because you got strength. Silver and gold because you got all the wealth you need. And wives because you will try to... You remember the scene in, in uh, My Big Fat Greek Wedding, those of you who saw the movie, where she says the husband is the head of the household, but the wife, she can turn the head. She's the neck. She can turn the head any way she wants. And it's true. Especially when there's a thousand of them. Don't multiply wives, he says. And yet Solomon does. Tragically, for all of the wisdom of Solomon, on each and every count, Solomon violates the standard of the Lord for a king. And ultimately, we don't know for sure if Solomon even died a saved man. Because the last we hear of Solomon, he has turned his heart away. You might say, well, wait a minute. Wasn't the kingdom still great under Solomon? Yeah, because God promised David it would be. But let me answer that question with a question. What was Solomon's legacy? What happened to the kingdom immediately after Solomon passed away and the next king came to rule? It fell apart. You want to know what, a, what a, someone's uh, best measure 
of greatness is, your best measure of success is not where you are right now. It's where your children are in 10 years. The best measure of your success in this world is not what you've accomplished in this life. It's what follows. It's the legacy that follows after you. It's either the goodness or the mess that you've left behind. And in Solomon's case, his polygamy invited foreign idols into his house. As a result, Israel drifts into idolatry. As a result of that, Rehoboam, his son, becomes king. The kingdom ends up divided. And ultimately, northern Israel ends up dispersed. And southern Judah goes into captivity in Babylon. And you can trace it all back to the violation of those three principles by Solomon. And that's the legacy. Chapter 2, verse 1. Now Solomon decided to build a house for the name of the Lord and a royal palace for himself. Now through verse 10, Solomon is going to address a letter to Hiram, or Hiram, the king of Tyre, who lives up in Lebanon. We talked about this Sunday, so I'm not going to belabor this point, except to remind you that the temple services were to the Lord, for the Lord, and about the Lord. The temple was not about the people. It was only for the people in so much as it was the place they could go to offer sacrifice to get themselves right with the Lord. The temple served as a a conduit to the Lord for the people, a focus of their faith. You might know this in verse 4. Solomon writes that the appointed feasts, Sabbaths, and sacrifices were required forever in Israel. I got to thinking about that after Sunday. These are required forever. This is a perpetual thing. And what I began thinking is, does that go beyond? Is this always the case for Israel? A couple of interesting verses to think about that indicate in the millennial kingdom, in the thousand year reign of Jesus, when He returns to rule and reign from Jerusalem, certain sacrifices, feasts, and ordinances, watch this, will be reinstated. Well, why is that? Well, let me read the verses first. Isaiah 56, verse 7. Speaking of the millennial kingdom, says, Even foreigners I will bring to my holy mountain and make them joyful in my house of prayer. Their burnt offerings and their sacrifices will be acceptable on my altar, for my house will be called a house of prayer for all the peoples. Well, Jesus is my sacrifice. What do I need to have a burnt offering or sacrifice for in the millennial kingdom? Well, Zechariah 14, 16 also indicates that it will come about that any who are left of all the nations that went against Jerusalem, they'll go up from year to year to worship the King, the Lord of hosts, and to celebrate the Feast of Booths, or Tabernacles. It's Shavuot. So it's one of the major feasts of Israel is obviously reinstated. Sacrifices, burnt offerings are reinstated. Why would we need the sacrifices if Jesus already was sacrificed for us? Same reason we take communion every Sunday as a memorial of what was done, as a remembrance of the true sacrifice. You see, the sacrifices in Israel's day all looked forward to the cross. They all were about preparing the people for the ultimate sacrifice who would be Jesus. Following Jesus, those sacrifices are unnecessary, but we don't take communion to re-crucify Jesus every week. We take communion to look back to the sacrifice at the cross, to remember what happened. There will be children born, according to Scripture, in the Millennial Kingdom, who will not have seen the crucifixion, who will not have that understanding. Sacrifices offered will be a memorial, a reminder, an arrow pointing back to the cross, so that even children born at that time will recognize their deep need for a Savior. We take communion here at the bridge every Sunday. I'd love to see it more often. 
but contrary, and, and I, contrary to the Catholic doctrine of transubstantiation, some of you may disagree with me on this, but we can look at Scripture and talk about it more later. Contrary to that doctrine, communion is not the continual, ongoing sacrifice of Jesus. He is not re-crucified again every Sunday. It's the commemoration of that sacrifice. It is so that we might look back at what the Bible says was once and for all finished on the cross of Calvary. So Solomon writes to Hiram, or Hiram requesting materials and labor. Skip down to verse 10 and we'll pick it up from there. We covered the other verses Sunday. Now behold, he's writing in this letter, I will give to your servants, the woodsmen who cut the timber, 20,000 cores of crushed wheat and 20,000 cores of barley and 20,000 baths of wine and 20,000 baths of oil. It wasn't because they bathed in wine and oil. That's just a standard of measurement. But as he's writing, he goes on, and Hiram, king of Tyre, Hiram here in Chronicles, Hiram in, in 1 Kings, same guy, answered in a letter sent to Solomon, because the Lord loves his people. He has made you king over them. And then Hiram continued, Blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel, who has made heaven and earth, who has given King David a wise son, endowed with discretion and understanding, who will build a house for the Lord and a royal palace for himself. Now to read that letter, you'd say, Hiram's a believer, isn't he? I will grant you that's a possibility. I have another theory myself, and that's that Hiram is a politician. And he knows how valuable his relationship is with Solomon and Israel. Remember, Solomon's kingdom is the greatest one in the region at this time. So it is good to be in complete agreement with the king of that great country. Hiram acknowledges the God of Israel as creator. I don't think as much from faith as from political expediency. And I simply point this out to say to you, whoever is president, don't look to your politicians for leadership and faith. You're not going to find it there. You may think that you will. And you may think, oh, isn't it wonderful that he's a praying man until he's caught cussing off camera. You may think, oh, it's it's wonderful that he's so spiritual until he uh, believes in in Allah as equal with Jehovah. Don't look to your politicians for faith leadership. Political expediency and personal gain tend to top the goals of their list. Verse 13. Now I am sending Haram Abi, a skilled man endowed with understanding, the son of a Danite woman, so an Israelite woman from the tribe of Dan, and a Tyrian father who knows how to work in gold, silver, bronze, iron, stone and wood, and in purple and violet and linen, crimson fabrics, and who knows how to make all kinds of engravings and to execute any design which may be assigned to him, to work with your skilled men and with those of my Lord David your father. Now then, let my Lord send to his servants wheat and barley, oil and wine, of which he has spoken, and we will cut whatever timber you need from Lebanon and bring it to you on rafts by sea to Joppa so that you may carry it up to Jerusalem. And that's exactly what they did. Tyre, Lebanon, is to the north of Israel. Joppa is right there today next to present-day Tel Aviv. And they would cut the timber and they would put it on rafts and literally float it right down the coastline of the Mediterranean to Joppa. From Joppa, they would have to travel 40 miles to get these logs and timber and all of this on down to Jerusalem. And it was not an easy journey. Well, Solomon numbered all the aliens who were in the land of Israel following the census which his father David had taken, and 153,600 were found. These are foreigners living there in the land. 
And Solomon appointed 70,000 of them to carry loads and 80,000 to quarry stones in the mountains and 3,600 supervisors to make the people work. Question, why did Israel need such a great foreign workforce? I think you can look to this possibility that primarily the Israelites were farmers. They were not workers. They were not known for working. They were known for farming. They were known for the land. Agriculture was their business. And that's interesting because when they returned, when the Jews began to return in greater numbers, coming back into the land in the late 19th, early 20th century, that's what they did. They farmed the land. They restored the land in an amazing way to some of the beauty that it originally had had. Well, then Solomon, chapter 3, began to build the house of the Lord in Jerusalem on Mount Moriah, where the Lord had appeared to his father David at the place that David had prepared on the threshing floor of Ornan the Jebusite. He began to build on the second day in the second month of the fourth year of his reign. By the way, let me just note this, the significance of Mount Moriah as the location for the temple is seen in its connection to a father's love and a father's sacrifice. I remind you, Mount Moriah is the place Abraham took Isaac, where God says, go sacrifice your son, your only son whom you love. And it's the first time the word love is mentioned in the Bible. It's Genesis 22. Your only son whom you love. And we know God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son that whoever believes in Him shall not perish but have everlasting life. Abraham and Isaac are that picture of it. Abraham doesn't end up sacrificing Isaac but is shown instead a ram caught in the thicket that he can sacrifice. And Genesis 22.14 Abraham called the name of that place the Lord will provide as it is said to this day in the mount of the Lord it will be provided. And it's absolutely stunning gang. Because right in that same location, the temple was built and the sacrifices for Israel, providing for their covering, happened continually when the temples were there. And there are those who believe, and I can't prove this one way or the other, but it's an interesting theory, that the original temple and the Ark of the Covenant, where the Ark of the Covenant sat in that temple, was the exact, precise, to-the-spot location of the bedrock into which the cross was dropped where Jesus was crucified which would be fascinating if that's the case. Either way, the temple sacrifices and the sacrifice of Jesus all happened right there at Mount Moriah. Verse 3 going on. Now these are the foundations which, with which Solomon laid for the building of the house of God. The length in cubits according to the old standard, of course you have your cubit standard books out there so you can check this, was 60 cubits and the width was 20 cubits. The porch which was in front of the house was as long as the width of the house, 20 cubits, and the height, 120. And inside he overlaid it with pure gold. Let me give you a picture of this and understanding. A cubit is approximately 18 inches. So any time you have like 20 cubits would be the equivalent of 30 inches. Okay, And you just add on like that. So it's an easy way to figure out. The foundation of the temple then was 90 by 30. 90 by 30. Surprisingly small, if you think about it. In fact, I'm not even sure. What, what are the... Anyone know what the measurements Russ, of the barn? So that's about 60 right there? Okay. 45 by 60, the barn. And the temple, the temple of Solomon, was only 90 by 30. Not much bigger than where we sit right now. I thought about that. Wow. I would have thought it was massive, huge, incredibly big. It was twice the size, by the way, of the tabernacle, which was small. You could have fit the tabernacle inside this barn. Huh. That's interesting. It's so small. 
Big things come in small packages. Verse 5 going on. He tells us that he overlaid the main room with cypress wood and overlaid it with fine gold and ornamented it with palm trees and chains. Furthermore, he adorned the house with precious stones and the gold was the gold from Parvaim. And he also overlaid the house with gold, the beams, the thresholds, and its walls and doors. He carved cherubim on the walls. Let me pause there for a moment and give you a picture of this. It was solid stone. The temple built up. Solid stone, 200 feet high, in the width and measurements that I just described. Inside, they overlaid all the walls, floors, ceilings, everything within the inside, overlaid with pure cedar. Very thick. And then they overlaid that everywhere you could look inside the temple with pure gold. So you walk in there, and all you see is gold. Absolutely amazing. And of course, all the furniture was gold as well. So once you get into the holy place of the temple, it was a stunning sight to behold. And verse 8 going on, or where, where were we just then? We stopped at, uh, overlaid the upper rooms with gold. Cherubim. Started eight. Now he made the room of the Holy of Holies. Its length across the width of the house was 20 cubits, and its width was 20 cubits. So it's 30 by 30. The original uh, tabernacle was 15 by 15. 30 by 30. The wingspan of the cherubim was 20 cubits. Okay, 30 feet across. The wing of one, five cubits, touching the wall of the house. Its other wing, five cubits, touched the wing of the other cherub. which was five cubits. That says in verse 12, the other wing of the cherub, five cubits, touched the wall of the house. And its other wing of five cubits was attached to the wing of the first cherub. The wings of these cherubim extended twenty cubits, and they stood on their feet facing the main room. He made the veil of violet, purple, crimson, and fine linen, and he worked cherubim on it. So these huge, massive cherubim with the wings that covered the entire span stood there overlooking the Holy of Holies in an amazing sight. Now as we read this, you might pause and say, what's the deal with the cherubim? There's a lot of cherubim worked into the weaving of the fabric and the walls and, and, and the two big ones and the two that were on top of the Ark of the Covenant. Why so many cherubim? Let me remind you, the temple was a copy of the heavenly original. And cherubim are many in heaven. So what Solomon is doing here and what the design is is to bring that picture of the heavenly into an earthly place. To give it that sense. John describes cherubim, by the way. Revelation chapter 4, verse 6, In the center and around the throne, four living creatures full of eyes in front and behind. So you could never sneak up behind them. The first creature was like a lion. The second creature like a calf. The third creature had the face like that of a man. And the fourth creature was like a flying eagle. Now Ezekiel tells us all of the cherubim have all four faces. So John is just seeing from one angle, apparently, and he sees four cherubim with four different faces. But if he were to go around to the side, they'd have four different faces still. And if we went around behind, four different faces still. And to the other side, four more faces. And I'm still dying for someone to make one of these cherubim to top a Christmas tree. I'd love to see it. And the four living creatures, Revelation 4, 8, each one of them having six wings are full of eyes around and within. And day and night they do not cease to say, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God, the Almighty, who was and who is and who is to come. And so again we see the temple as a copy of the heavenly reality. Now you might say, looking back at this, there are lots of cherubim, but there's also a lot of um, pomegranates. What's the deal with the pomegranates? Well, in Israel, 
there, are, there were uh, what's known as the seven primary fruits of Israel. It includes figs, it includes dates, pomegranates are one of those seven primary fruits of the land. And the picture of the pomegranates are symbols of the fruitfulness of God's blessing on the land that he had given to the people. In Daniel chapter 11, it's referred to as the beautiful land. And it was beautiful. You know, it's tragic what happened to Israel over the years because it became a desolate place. By the time Mark Twain visited it in the 1800s, he described it as a God-forsaken desolate land. Not the holy land he was expecting at all. But it wasn't always like that. Psalm 65 verse 9 says, You visit the earth and cause it to overflow. You greatly enrich it. The stream of God is full of water. You you prepare their grain, for thus you prepare the earth. You water it, it furrows abundantly. You settle its ridges. You soften it with showers. You bless its growth. You have crowned the year with your bounty and your paths drip with fatness. The pastures of the wilderness drip and the hills gird themselves with rejoicing. The meadows are clothed with flocks and the valleys are covered with grain. They shout for joy. Yes, they sing. And ancient descriptions of the land of Israel say it was a beautiful land. Fruitful. We've heard it called the land flowing with milk and honey. And truly it was. And it was only after the Jewish people were driven out that the land began to fall to desolation and decay. Interesting that with the return of the Jewish people, the land is coming to life again. Verse 15. He also made two pillars for the front of the house, 35 cubits high, and the capitals on top of each was five cubits. And he made chains in the inner sanctuary and placed them on the tops of the pillars. And he made 100 pomegranates and placed them on the chains. And he erected the pillars in front of the temple, one on the right, the other on the left. And he named the one on the right, Yakin, and the one on the left, Boaz. Two massive pillars that stood right there in the front of the temple. And they're so significant that each one had a special name, Yakin, which means in Hebrew, he shall establish Boaz in his strength. He shall establish in His strength. They're standing at the entrance to the temple where these two named pillars to remind the people that it was all about the Lord. He shall establish in His strength. By the way, Jesus refers to these two pillars in His letters to the churches in Revelation, Revelation 3.12. He says, He who overcomes, I will make him a pillar in the temple of My God. And he will not go out from it anymore. I will write on him the name of My God. And the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down out of heaven from my God and my new name. Why would Jesus refer to someone who overcomes as a pillar? Well, to the Hebrew mind, it would bring to the thoughts these two pillars, Yaquim, Boaz. What is is Jesus saying? That the one who overcomes is established by God and secured in His strength. Just like the temples of the pillar of the Lord. Now chapter 4, we move on into the furnishings of the temple. Hang with me. Then he made a bronze altar, 20 cubits in length and 20 cubits in width and 10 cubits in height. Gang, the bronze altar was 30 feet square and 15 feet high. This hugely overshadowed the original brazen altar that Moses had made in the wilderness. This is a big, big uh, stage up here. Literally, they had to have a large ramp leading up to it so that they could walk the animals up there for sacrifice. And the priest literally would go and stand up on top of the altar to offer sacrifice now. This brazen altar was so big. Verse 2, 
Also he made the cast metal sea, ten cubits from brim to brim, circular in form, and its height was five cubits, and its circumference was thirty cubits. Now figures like oxen were under it and all around it, ten cubits entirely encircling the sea. The oxen were in two rows cast in one piece. It stood on twelve oxen, three facing north, three facing west, three facing south, and three facing east. And the sea was set on top of them, and all their hindquarters turned inwards, which I, you know, I think is just appropriate for that design. And it was a hand breadth thick, and its brim was made like the brim of a cup, like a lily blossom, and it could hold 3,000 baths. And he also made ten basins with which to wash, and he set five on the right side, five on the left, to rinse things for the burnt offering, but the sea was for the priests to wash in. The bronze sea. What was originally in the tabernacle, a little hand-washing station, has now become literally a swimming pool. It was huge. By comparison, it held 17,500 gallons of water. That would be 3,000 baths. For the priests to wash in, we're told. Now, don't miss this. The idea of baptism originates right here. Christian baptism. What we practice when we go down to the pond and lay someone down into the water and that complete immersion finds its origins right here. Because the priests now move from what, and it becomes a Jewish word, a very well-known Jewish word today, the mikvah, the Jewish bath, the ritual cleansing, the Jewish mikvah. Ceremonial cleansing of, of the water going in completely, complete immersion head to foot was the mikvah. And as with the Passover in the way that Jesus took that and gave its fullest meaning in the Lord's Supper, so Jesus with the mikvah reinstitutes baptism as the symbol of complete cleansing of a believer. Now Paul says this in Romans 6 verse 3, Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus have been baptized into His death? Therefore we have been buried with Him through baptism into death, so that as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, so too we might walk in newness of life. And it gets its origin right here at this bronze sea at the temple. Verse 7 going on. Then he made the ten golden lampstands, not one, but ten, in the way prescribed for them, and he set them in the temple, five on the right side, five on the left. He also made ten tables, that's the tables of showbread instead of just one, placing them in the temple, five on the right side, five on the left, and he made one hundred golden bowls. And then he made the court of the priests and the great court and the doors for the court and overlaid their doors with bronze. He set the sea on the right side of the house toward the southeast. So now we have in addition to the the massive bronze altar of sacrifice and the huge bronze sea for the ceremonial mikvah bath. Now we have ten lampstands. 60 feet long in that holy place. Not the holy of holies. That was 30, but 60 in the holy place. And so you'd walk in and lined up Five to each side were five golden lampstands. And in between the lampstands were now five tables of showbread leading all the way down to the end of the hall, which there you would see the altar of incense right up against the absolutely enormous and beautiful veil that was thick and heavy woven behind the altar of incense. Floors, walls, ceilings, pure gold. Everything gold. The light would be from the seven, what is seven times ten, so seventy oil lamps now burning providing the light inside of the pure gold inside of the temple. And there were also a hundred gold washing bowls. This would be for just for the hand washing. And these literally lined the walls of the holy place. Again, straight ahead is the golden altar of incense. Verse 11, Kurum 
He made the pails and the shovels and the bowls, so Hiram finished doing the work which he had performed for King Solomon in the house of God. The two pillars, the bowls, the two capitals on top of the pillars, and the two networks to cover the two bowls of the capitals which were on top of the pillars, and the 400 pomegranates for the two networks, two rows of pomegranates for each network to cover the two bowls of the capitals which were on the pillars. I mean, this guy's getting specific. He wants us to see the picture here. 400 pomegranates for the two networks, two rows of pomegranates for each network to cover the two bowls of the capitals which were on the pillars. He also made the stands, and he made the basins on the stands, and the one sea with the twelve oxen under it, and the pails, and the shovels, and the forks, and all its utensils. Hiram Abi made the polished bronze for King Solomon for the house of the Lord. On the plain in Jordan, of the Jordan, the king cast them in the clay ground between Sukkot and Zareda. And thus Solomon made all these utensils in great quantities, for the weight of the bronze couldn't be found out. Solomon also made all the things that were in the house of God, even the golden altar, the tables with the bread of the presence on them, the lampstands with their lamps of pure gold, to burn in front of the inner sanctuary in the way prescribed. The flowers, the lamps, the tongs of gold, the purest gold, the snuffers, the bowls, the spoons, the firepans of pure gold, the entrance of the house, its inner doors for the Holy of Holies, and the door of the house, that is of the nave, all of gold. Verse 1 of chapter 5, continuing, Thus all the work that Solomon performed for the house of the Lord was finished. And Solomon brought in the things that David his father had dedicated, even the silver and gold and all the utensils, and he put them in the treasuries of the house of God. And just for your notes, that took seven and a half years. From start to finish. See, you're thinking, wow, Rick, we've gone almost an hour tonight. No, we've gone seven and a half years. I think that's impressive. Now, aside from being interesting especially for those of you who are into artistry and craftsmanship and maybe even architecture, beyond just the visual we're giving here, why is it important to read and study all these things? Why even take the time to recount all of this with specificity, this, this temple that we're looking at? And I'll tell you why. If we get a clear sense of these things now, when we're in the Hebrew Scriptures we will be far better prepared to understand the typology of these things when we get to the New Testament. Let me give you an example. We studied the book of Revelation. It's online. You can listen to it. It took us nine months of Sunday nights to get through the book of Revelation. Why so long? Because half the time we were going back to the Old Testament to explain what was said in the book of Revelation. If we had known the Old Testament... If we understood all of these things that we're talking about tonight in the temple, for example, the pillar, when we got to Revelation and we saw a pillar, like a pillar in the temple, we'd think, oh, Zacchaeus and Boaz, he shall establish in his strength. That's what Jesus is talking about. And it would make so much better sense. The book of Hebrews, one of the hardest books to work through in the New Testament. If you understand the Hebrew typology of the sacrifices and the blood and all the things that were required for the work in the temple... When you get to Hebrews, it's like, oh yeah, I get that. I see what he's saying. Yeah, because it all works together. It's not two books. It's one word. One word from the Father. Now watch this, because we come to the real beauty of the temple, and we'll end on this tonight. Then Solomon, chapter 5, verse 2, assembled to Jerusalem the elders of Israel and all the heads of the tribes and the leaders of the fathers' households of the sons of Israel to bring up the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord out of the city of David, which is in Zion. That's just, uh, what would that be? To the east, that would be the south, on the southern side of the temple, just down the hill, was where the Ark was being housed. Now they're bringing it up the hill, up to the Temple Mount, 
and to the temple itself. It says, All the men of Israel assembled themselves to the king at the feast, that is, in the seventh month. And then all the elders of Israel came, and the Levites took up the ark. They brought up the ark and the tent of meeting and all the holy utensils which were in the tent. So those things obviously were brought from Gabeon. The Levitical priests brought them up. King Solomon and all the congregation of Israel who were assembled with him before the ark were sacrificing so many sheep and oxen they could not be counted or numbered. And then the priests brought the ark of the covenant of the Lord to its place into the inner sanctuary of the house to the holy of holies under the wings of the cherubim. Remember those great cherubim that overarched the inside there. For the cherubim spread their wings over the place of the ark so that the cherubim made a covering over the ark and its poles. The poles were so long that the ends of the poles of the ark could be seen in front of the inner sanctuary, but they cannot be seen outside, but they are there to this day. There was nothing in the ark except the two tablets which Moses put there at Horeb, where the Lord made a covenant with the sons of Israel when they came out of Egypt. One quick thing is interesting here. The writer of Hebrews tells us that in the ark, when the ark was in the tabernacle, it contained more. There was more here than just the two tablets. The Hebrew writer says, Hebrews 9.4, that the Ark of the Covenant, covered on all sides with gold, and which was the golden jar holding the manna, and Aaron's rod which budded, and the tables of the covenant. But now we're told only the tables of the covenant are there. What happened? Where's the jar of manna? What happened to Aaron's rod that budded? You'll find this interesting. I don't know. I have no idea. I mean, the Philistines may have removed him when the ark was taken to the temple of Dagon. I guess that's a possibility. Or maybe when it came back to Beth Shemesh. Do you remember that scene when the Israelites gathered around? The ark was back. Hey, let's make sure everything's still inside. And they opened it and 70,000 people dropped dead. kind of doubt that they pulled things out of the ark at that point. But somehow, the jar of manna and Aaron's rod, at this point, by the time the ark comes into the temple, they are no longer present. Only the tables of the law are there. Apparently, gang, things like the jar of manna and Aaron's rod are not as important to the Lord as His Word is. But His Word He maintains. His Word He keeps. His Word is there. Now for the beauty, verse 11. So when the priests came forth from the holy place, for all the priests who were present had sanctified themselves without regard to divisions... And all the Levitical singers, Asaph and Haman and Yedutun and their sons and kinsmen, clothed in fine linen, with cymbals and harps and lyres, standing east of the altar, and with them 120 priests blowing trumpets in unison. When the trumpeters and the singers were to make themselves heard with one voice to praise and glorify the Lord, and when they lifted up their voice accompanied by trumpets and cymbals and instruments of music, and when they praised the Lord saying, He indeed is good! For His loving kindness is everlasting. Then the house, the house of the Lord, was filled with a cloud so that the priest could not stand to minister because of the cloud for the glory of the Lord filled the house of God. The Shekinah glory of God. That great cloud of intense and bright light. Reminiscent of the luminous cloud. In fact, I think it's one of the same. The Shekinah glory that fills the temple, same as the light, the cloud that was bright and led the people through the wilderness. But over the years, some have used this verse, this final verse, as a proof text of being slain in the Spirit. 
the phrase slain in the Spirit, meaning that the Holy Spirit comes on you and you go down. And some have said, well, see, here it is right here. Verse 14, the priests could not stand to minister because of the cloud, for the glory of the Lord filled the house of God. They couldn't stand. They all went down. They were all slain by the Spirit. Well, the Hebrew word amad, translated stand here, literally means to continue or endure. They couldn't endure it. They couldn't continue. What are you saying, Rick? I believe God is able to sufficiently give us everything of of greatest importance that He deems necessary and valuable in our walk of faith. And I believe He's done so. But I need to say something to you guys about this. And I, I just ran across this. I won't read the article to you. Just one line out of it. Perhaps you read today, it was in the Washington Times, the Episcopal Church ends gay bishops' ban. And you may recall this the whole uh, kind of uproar over Bishop Gene Robinson of New Hampshire, who was the first gay bishop in the Episcopal Church, and they allowed that. They said, we're going to roll with this. But they had a ban on anybody becoming a bishop who was gay until yesterday, when the Episcopal Church, uh, and, and if you're visiting, we're not an Episcopal Church, we're a barn church, but it's, it's interesting, here in this, in this article, it talks about their actions in reversing this promise made to the rest of the Episcopal Church, the, the Anglican Church of England, by agreeing to end the church's gay bishop ban, um, they voted to allow uh, opening all levels of ordained ministry to gay clergy. And the move officially took effect Tuesday, and it's causing quite an uproar even within the, the uh, Episcopal and Anglican Church. But here's what I wanted to point out to you. One line, as the debate intensified, John B. Chain of Washington, who's a bishop, Episcopal bishop here in our state, he said that he was going to vote against lifting the ban, but as he listened to the debate, he shifted his opinion. Why? He said he realized a ban on gay clergy, quote, prohibited dioceses from being open to the power of the Holy Spirit. In other words, if I am to, speaking for him, if I am to ban another church over here, from allowing a gay bishop, well, who am I to stand in the way of the Holy Spirit? Maybe the Holy Spirit wants to ordain a gay bishop, and I don't want to get in the way of that. Boy, I read that and I just went, are you kidding me? The Holy Spirit is so often misrepresented, it's not even funny. We so quickly want to jump in and say, oh, that's, it's the Spirit of the Lord. It's the Holy Spirit. It's, it's His Spirit doing this, that, or the other. Rick, are you comparing this to the idea of being slain in the Spirit? No, I'm not. I just want you to understand something, that without God's Word, without His Word, God can be seen as erratic as the Islamic God Allah, who is constantly changing, who you cannot trust anything because He... He always changes. Without His Word, the Spirit is, becomes open to anyone's interpretation or explanation of anything that happens. There's no way to know, well, is this the Holy Spirit or is it my emotion? Is this the Holy Spirit or is it what I want to see happen? Is this the Spirit of God or is it my tradition? One way or the other. Which is why the Word is so absolutely critical in understanding the work of God and His Spirit. Now please understand, I I haven't personally experienced going down in the Spirit or the idea of being slain in the Spirit. I haven't experienced that. 
I do, however, have close friends who I absolutely trust and I know their motives and they have. What do I do with that? I don't deny what the Holy Spirit may be doing in somebody's life. But I do constantly go to the Word to test and measure everything that I hear and see. To be sure that this is of God and not of man. And either way, the context of this single individual verse, and what I'm really getting at is the context does not support the idea that these priests were slain in the Spirit. And when someone takes a verse, and it could be anything, and this just happens to be the example tonight, but it could be anything where I grab one verse and say, well, see, because of this, I believe that. Was that what it means? You just better be sure. But here's why I went into all of that and what I want you to hear tonight. When was it that the beauty that was the temple, it wasn't the gold, it wasn't the lampstands, it, it wasn't the bronze sea or the altar or the tables or the incense or the, or the golden ark. Those were not the things of beauty to behold. It wasn't the pure gold that lined walls, floors, ceilings and doors. That's not what was beautiful about the temple. What was beautiful about the temple was the presence of the Spirit of God. That was the beauty. And it was a beauty that was so overwhelming the priest could not even look to see it. And when, look at this, when did the glory, when did this beauty fill the temple? When did it happen? It's when they praised the Lord. It says, when they praised the Lord, saying He's good and His loving kindness is everlasting, then the house, the house of the Lord, was filled with the presence of the Lord. And we can go one step further. Verse 16 specifically says, when they praised the Lord in unison. The word unison there is achad in the Hebrew. You may recognize the word. It's the same word that's used to describe the oneness of Adam and Eve. The man and woman shall be one. Achad. It's the same word used to describe the Trinity in Deuteronomy 6.4. Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God. The Lord is one. A God, a plurality of oneness. And we may differ on things theologically or experientially like the manifestations of the Spirit. Now, let me quickly just point out, I, I don't see differing on the issue of homosexuality as one of these things because the Bible is clear about what the Lord accepts and what He does not. And homosexuality, biblically speaking, not Rick speaking, the Bible speaking, is termed an abomination to the Lord. So I'm not talking about that. But on the issue of, of how the Holy Spirit works, how He functions in our lives, how He impacts or affects us, though we may differ on things theologically or experientially, If we want, as a people, to see the glory of the Lord, we must praise the Lord as one. It's one of the hardest things in the world for me as a pastor, especially a teaching pastor. And Les and I talk about this all the time. I hear about things going on, and I immediately go to the Word. I want to make sure everybody's okay, and are we getting out there over here? Is this strange thing happening there? And I want to protect. And the truth is, there are a lot of churches out there that are very different than the bridge, but they love Jesus. And Jesus is central to theology. And Jesus is where salvation comes from. And I can agree with that. 
And I may not agree with the structure of worship, and I may not agree with a certain liturgy or a certain way of doing things or, or, or a difference. And I may even look at other churches sometimes and go, oh man, they are so far off from the perfect church that is the Bridge Christian Fellowship. <laughs> but the truth is, gang, the only way we are going to see the glory of the Lord is when we worship Him as one. And so we have to come to this place of recognizing the centrality of Jesus our Savior and how there are so many other things that we can agree to disagree about, that we can discuss, that we can consider and pray about. But the way to seeing the glory of the Lord is clear. Praise Him as one. Psalm 133, and we'll finish. Behold, how good and pleasant it is for brothers to dwell together in unity. It is like the precious oil upon the head coming down upon the beard, even Aaron's beard, coming down upon the edge of his robes. It is like the dew of Hermon coming down upon the mountains of Zion, for there the Lord commanded the blessing. Life forever. Let's pray. Father, one of the things that both thrills me and frightens me about just being an independent fellowship is recognizing how diverse we truly are in this place. How many of us come from so many unique backgrounds spiritually. And how, Lord, we don't always see eye to eye. Our traditions are sometimes different. The teachings we were raised on sometimes different. But Father, we come before You tonight and we agree on this. We agree that Your Word is Your Word. And we agree, Lord, that Jesus is Lord to the glory of God the Father. We agree that salvation is found by no other name but by Jesus Christ alone. We cling to Jesus Christ as our Lord and our Savior. We we gather ourselves, Father, we center ourselves around Him at the heart of everything going on here and everything else, Lord, we're just going to bring it to You and like Solomon, we're going to ask for wisdom and knowledge, for discernment, for understanding of heart. But Father, please hear our hearts tonight. We praise You as one. We glorify You and we invite and ask Your Spirit to be at work among us. In Jesus' name, amen.